0: These people try and press on people and um, and uh, i made I made the comment that um, lordship people tend to be able to swim easily in one John and James, uh, but when they uh, are asked to discuss the letter to the Corinthians, they become unhinged and um, and lose the plot because um, uh, the Corinthian church is that that wonderful sort of uh, mix where um, in in one John John is setting the, the, the standard you know as Christ would have us live, and he also allows for failure and and uh, and repentance but it, it it tends to be as some of the uh, teachers call it absolutist whereas in in Paul, Paul's dealing with the Corinthian church. Uh, He's dealing with them um, uh, sternly in in places, but the underlying um, um, relationship between Paul and the church is one of a loving pastor and a loving evangelist that got them out of a a dreadful lifestyle. And uh, we we see some really interesting passages here in chapter 7 when we start looking at it tonight. But because um, we missed last week, I just want to... Uh, Highlight something that uh, is right throughout the the letter and that is this divisiveness or this factionalism And we even see it again uh, in Revelation, uh, sorry, in chapter 11 uh, I think in verses 18 and 19 where Paul is discussing what happens in the church when they come around the communion table And and he really um, um, uh, gets stuck into them for their behavior uh, as a church full of divisions um, uh, around the com- communion table. And I was doing some research on, on some other things and uh, you often find little gold nuggets uh, where you least expect them. And uh, I, was, I came across uh, some comments by uh, an early church leader called John Christostom, who was the Bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century. Um, early parts of the fourth century and he was an absolutely highly regarded, well-loved early leader and he actually um, wrote a commentary on on Paul's letter to the Corinthians and uh, one of the things that really struck me in the little gold nugget that I found is he was actually dealing with um, uh, chapters six and seven uh, in in the passage that I was reading. And he was um, highlighting the fact that the church was riven by these factions and and torn apart by these divisions. And uh, he he interestingly contrasted the last part of chapter six and the first part of chapter seven. And it, it really does bring extra clarity to the problems with this church because if we, if I hope you've all got your Bibles, because you're going to, you know, go back and, and have a look. So I want us to just quickly go back at uh, one Corinthians chapter six, verses twelve through to twenty. We're not going to do it exhaustively, but I want you to have a look and what um, Christostom and other commentators have said that um, it's a contrast uh, in Scripture between two factions that were prominent within the. Um, Corinthian church and if you remember our studies back in uh, chapter one Paul was told by Chloe's household that there were basically four factions and one was um, uh, lifted up and exalted Apollos Um, the next one was um, Paul himself there was a faction of Paul and then there was a faction of Peter the apostle Peter how on earth Peter got dragged into this I'm not sure whether or not some of the Corinthian believers were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when, when the spirit fell. And, uh, and it had a, a remarkable impact on those particular believers. So Peter even had his own faction in Corinth. Uh, and the last faction was unto the Lord himself, Jesus. And we look at um, the first two factions, uh, Apollos and, and Paul, And they they come into stark contrast in these two passages, the end of um, chapter six and the start of chapter seven. And under Apollos, Apollos was um, one of these brilliant speakers and and an intellectual and uh, very highly skilled in rhetoric and and, uh, um, debating and uh, intellectual discussions. Uh, And it was... He that um, was had to be uh, tutored by Priscilla and Aquila because uh, he had been he had received the baptism of um, John, but not the uh, baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, and and born again into the body of Christ. And so they brought him up to speed, but he found it obviously difficult to leave behind his intellectual background. And uh, we, we see this in some of the, the verses. I just want to quickly highlight these again because it makes chapter 7 uh, far more understandable to us. And in verse 12, you have this quote, and it's all things are lawful for me. And, and it, I'll get you the notes um, afterwards. But that statement should be in quotes, okay, because it's one of the slogans or the slang sayings in the Corinthian church. And as I pointed out last time, is that this is because uh, when Paul came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and he taught them the whole counsel of God, one of the issues that came about was the fact that um, the emphasis on the fact that the, the cross was the victory and Jesus has paid for all of your sins and that we're set free from the kingdom of darkness and we're being transferred into the kingdom of light and into the kingdom of God. But the Corinthians were were um, sort of notorious for listening to half the message. And the half the message is, Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins. And we were talking about Gnosticism last time. And so the Gnostics were saying that anything you do in the body uh, doesn't really matter because matter, the body is evil anyway. And we are spiritual beings now because we're believers and and uh, nothing can touch our spiritual life, our spiritual destiny, etc. cetera. So what we do in the body is, is immaterial. And Paul is attacking this, but this is um, where, where they're saying in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Paul then adds a, a counter to that, but, not, but all things are not helpful or in some of your versions, profitable. So you can do things, But there are going to be consequences and all things are lawful for me, that same quote again. And Paul says, but I will not be brought under the power or the command or the control of any of them. Because if you give yourself to sin thinking that you are distanced from its consequences because of this really terrible Gnostic teaching, what they're denying is that there will be consequences to their emotions, to their intellect, and most definitely to their body." Um, and, and Paul is, is really attacking this um, uh, belief. And these, these uh, verses from 12 through to 20 are really attributed to the Apollonian uh, faction where uh, they're still affected by the Corinthian lifestyle and trying to justify it in, in sort of pseudo-Christian ways. And in verse 13, there's this other quote again, and it's a, another one of these Corinthian slogans. Where it says food for the stomach and stomach for foods and what they're saying is god gave us a stomach so when we are hungry and we crave food then we eat food and we are satisfied the huge problem with that is they also um uh, without being impolite uh, because i think there's some kids in india listening but we all have other parts of our body that were also given to us by God for a specific purpose. And that is the procreation of children. But what they're saying is is, it's one thing to crave food, eat, and then be satisfied. So what's wrong with craving the other thing, doing it and being satisfied. And yet it's part of the body and not part of us. And, you know, it, it reminded me of a period of time when, um, I was working in the, in the uh, uh, disability sector and I was talking to a whole group of people who um, were living a kind of Corinthian lifestyle. And, uh, you know, they were poo pooing my position because, as a Christian, I was saying, listen, there are consequences to what you are doing. And you may be young now, but there will come a time in your life when you will pay for what you are doing now and they they countered that with to me with by saying but it's just a natural function and i said it's not a natural function it's actually a spiritual function and the bible points out that it's a spiritual function and so you know we we're, we're looking at corinthians 2000 years ago but the same mindset and the same issues are with us now not only within um, 20th century human society but dreadfully and sadly within the 20th century church because you know the commentators are saying that uh, pastors are running away from these passages because they don't want to confront their congregations with the consequences of lifestyles that they turn a blind eye to. And I think that's very sad and, and I think it's um, unacceptable for a pastor to do that because there are consequences for the things that we do. And so when they say food for the stomach and stomach for the foods and Paul counters once again, but God will destroy both it that is the stomach and them, the foods. And he's saying, and he goes into the spiritual uh, aspect of this. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. Now that you're a born again, Christian, Everything that you think, do and say, your lifestyle, how you present yourself, what you say, what you think and how you behave should be aimed at glorifying the Lord. And and the Corinthians are uh, in, in a large part not doing that. And this is what Paul is doing because Chloe is so concerned and her household is so concerned that she's written to Paul in Ephesus and said this is going on. And so Paul is saying the body is not for immorality but it's for Jesus and Jesus is for the body because he gave it to us Uh, it's not something that we created it's something that he birthed in Genesis chapter 2 out of the dust of the earth and he breathed life into it and so we had Adam and then he took the rib out of the side and then we had Eve and then we had the progenitors of the human race and in verse 14 he says and God both raised up Jesus at the resurrection and will also raise us up by his power. And the reality is that when we get to the second second letter of Corinthians sometime next year, um, I'm not going to do it straight after this one, but we have to realize that in verse five, Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus and give an account of our witness for him. And Paul is trying to remind them in that particular single verse that because God both raised Jesus up from the dead in the resurrection, then we also will be raised up and we will be taken into heaven and we will have to give an account of our lifestyle. And he's, he's emphasizing this, that you cannot divorce the body and the spirit. They are unified in one body. And he says in verse 15, do you not know? And, And in fact, In 15 and in 16 and in 19, he uses this phrase, do you not know? And this is one of the rhetorical devices that he's using back at the uh, Apollos faction who are very intellectual because these statements are part of a rhetorical argument because he's not saying, do you not know? He's actually saying, you do know because I told you. But he's, he's phrasing it in a way that makes them obliged to give an answer, yes or no. And they can't say no because Paul has taught them uh, that everything that they're doing is reminiscent of what he pulled them out of when he preached the gospel and they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so he's using this phrase, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?" shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot as certainly not. And that is so that phrase in Greek is may it never be. Certainly not. You know, you and I are like cells, individual cells within the body of Christ that, that um, we were born into by the Holy spirit. And we have a responsibility then that if we are, part of the body of Christ, we are spiritually one, united with Jesus. And therefore, if you go and and conduct yourself in a manner where you are uh, um, being completely immoral, you're actually dragging God with you when you do that. And, And he's saying, never let that be, never let that be. And in 16, again, he's saying the same phrase again, or do you not know? That he is joined that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her because it was set in stone in genesis two twenty four um, when God says for this reason a man will leave his mother and father and join with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. that was the statement that's that um, established uh, God's design for human relationships male and female and and Paul is saying here if you're going to join yourself with these thousands of prostitutes that were in the city of Corinth, that you spiritually unite yourself with her. And and we know also in the second letter in chapter six, verse 14, um, Paul readdresses this issue again in a slightly different way by saying that a believer should not marry an unbeliever uh, because you are, um, um, contrasting light with darkness again and and these things uh, paul is attacking because it's part of this intellectual um, um double speak that one faction in the corinthian church has got into and to be quite frank over over 30 years of being in church i've heard arguments like this um, And and it's distressing to see that the same problems that were affecting the Corinthian church are, uh, are affecting the church in the 21st century. And verse 17, Paul says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Amen. I can't wait to see my Lord. And in verse 18, he's saying, flee that immorality. I mean, flee in in the Greek is run as far and as fast as you can from that lifestyle because he says, in the translation it says every sin that a man does, I would prefer it to say every other sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits this immorality sins against his own body and therefore... They're not only physical consequences, but there are spiritual consequences. And verse 19, he says, with this phrase again, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, God sent the Holy Spirit to wash you clean, to regenerate you, to have you born again, and you are not your own. And he emphasizes this phrase several times in the letter because two thirds of the Corinthian church are actually slaves, either bond servants by choice or slaves not by choice, but they are in the church. And he's using that phrase to show show these people that you were once in a slave market, you were once standing on a platform, you were once being observed by purchasers walking up and down the platform seeking whom they wished to purchase and they would hand over a sum of money and you became their property. And Paul is emphasizing this verse that you are not your own. You are now in the body of Christ and he has paid the price that you could never afford for that privilege to be in the church. And he finishes off here in verse 20. For you were bought at a price. And that price was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it has to be a free gift from God because it's simply impossible for us to ever work for it or to somehow pay for it. It had to be a free gift from God as um, Jesus told the woman at the, the, Samaritan woman at the well. And therefore he says, seeing you have been purchased into the body of Christ by such a sacrifice, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So Paul is saying the two are one in an identity and you can't separate one from the other. And this is a direct attack on this Gnostic heresy that, uh, that he's fighting in this, as, this area. And he said, in your, glorify God in your body And in your spirit which belong to God and that's it so he's really he's really putting to one side this whole concept that the um, Apollos faction is saying is that because Jesus set us free from the penalty of all our sins we can't understand why there is a penalty for us doing when we have these natural functions in our body and paul says you've been called to a much higher standard you've been called into the kingdom of god you've been called into the kingdom of light and you're supposed to flee from and reject and leave behind your previous um, conduct and your previous lifestyle so having done that and really um, um um Uncovered the the falsehood that this faction was promoting. Anything goes. I mean, it's basically an anything goes faction. We now come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and it's almost like black and white. And it's we're doing verses 1 to 17. And we now we look at this phrase saying now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And I don't know which um, um, version of the Bible you've got, but in the New King James and in the King James, there is a punctuation mark there. It's a colon. So usually when you have a colon, you have a statement and then several things that follow that to edify and explain the statement. And uh, some of the commentators have said, well, he's finished with Chloe. Now there's a whole bunch of questions that he needs to ask. And I can't see that because he's saying that Chloe wrote to him in Ephesus about these things. And I just see it as a continuation of of the issues that she's bringing up of the uh, relating to the problems within the church. And here we have again the first statement after the punctuation mark is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And it's very illuminating because uh, in the English standard version, if you, if you saw that the translators of the ESV have actually put that statement in quotes because it, it directly relates and contrasts to the slogans that the other faction we're using in the passage we've just done, which is all things are lawful for me. That's a quote. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. That's another quote. Now, this faction that starts in verse one in chapter seven, their slogan is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And uh, this is when this little nugget popped up from the writings of John Christostom, the Bishop of Constantinople. And he said, this was from the Pauline faction, the faction that elevates and follows after Paul. And it becomes so clear if you when you understand that because Paul is a celibate, therefore he lives uh, a life of, singleness and so this um, um, faction within the church that elevates Paul and follows after Paul and tries to imitate Paul rather than Peter or or, um, Apollos they've said well if Paul's celibate that must be the highest form of spirituality and Paul is just saying listen you're still stuck in factionalism And this particular um, faction that John Christostom identified, and he was only a grandfather or two away from this whole period of time. Um, And Paul is saying in verse two, and I would prefer the translators not to have said, nevertheless, it would be better read as however, nevertheless, doesn't, doesn't, um, um, Link back to that statement as clear as if it was in however and paul is saying here because of sexual immorality which is drenching this um, city and drenching um, and damaging the church let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband so he's directly addressing this uh position that his faction has taken in the church that okay if immorality is such a problem in the church, let's all be celibate. And that is never going to work. And he explains uh, why. And his, Paul's admonition in this particular passage is that God designed human beings for sociability. And so what he's saying is that God designed us, male and female, that we would be united together in one flesh for fellowship and companionship and the fulfilling of desires and also for um, the procreation of the human race. And so Paul is saying, however, I am not advocating uh, celibacy for everyone. He he expresses in this passage, something that John doesn't do at 1 John. He expresses several times his opinion about what is best for the church. And he makes a contrast further down uh, in this little passage where he reiterates what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five and Matthew 19, but he's also saying that he has the permission or the concession because of his relationship with Jesus to say, if you can't meet that standard, here's what you should do. And he's saying it's, Probably unlikely that you people can maintain celibacy because someone else has um, displayed it to you, and that someone else is him. And he says the safest place for you to be is in a monogamous, healthy, God designed relationship man and woman, woman and man. Why? Because it's the safest place to avoid temptation. It's the safest place to stop you from going back to the lifestyle which Paul had pulled you out of. And so in verse 3, he says, and this this is God's design for a healthy marriage. Let the husband render to his wife the affection or the love due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. That's what's God's standard. Uh, is and, and we know that it's so hard for human beings, with all of their background and their their cultural uh, and emotional and family backgrounds, for for that obviously to be successful every time. And I always liken it to because I've had a lot of people over a lot of years come to me and ask me about issues in marriage and issues in in family, and I've likened. Um, the marriage to trying to fit two, two feet into one shoe, because what you're doing is you're, you're taking two people, two personalities, two backgrounds, two, um, um, uh, you're the product of many generations of your family within certain, um, environments. And you are, the product that you have natural responses to circumstances and to your surroundings. And so when you get two people, uh, sometimes that are uh, different or even in within the same culture, you're still trying to meld two personalities together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but Paul is exhorting that as the safest place for people to be in order to um, resist the, the, uh, the alternative lifestyle and in verse four he says he emphasizes this one fleshness that is the desire of God and he says the wife does not have the authority over her own body but the husband does and likewise now this is a shock to um, um, uh, people in the Greco-Roman Empire uh, 2,000 years ago because Paul emphasizes the the equality between a man and a woman in marriage. And if that equality is not there, then you are almost always going to have um, problems there. And Paul emphasizes this equality. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so it emphasizes the fact that they've come together and they are one flesh. And in verse five, Paul says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So you take a certain period of time um, in agreement and there is something that you have to pray about, something in the church, something in the family, something in the society, and you dedicate yourself to fasting and prayer. But he said, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he's dealing with this even in, a, um, um, in the marital situation. Um, and so verse 6 is the kicker because he says in verse 6, but I say this, and in the New King James it says as a concession, But in the King James version, they prefer to use the word uh, permission. But I say this by permission, not as a commandment from the Lord. And so Paul is dealing with human beings who are failing to meet the standard that God um, um, demands for their life. And it's a little bit like the Levitical sacrificial system under the Mosaic law. The 613 commandments in the Mosaic law roughly divided in half where God says, thou shalt do this. And the other half is thou shalt not do this. And God knows full well because of his omniscience, he knows full well that people will not be able to reach or maintain that standard. So he has a sacrificial system where when they fail, they come to the temple, they come to um, um, uh, the priest and they make offerings to atone for, um, uh, for their failure in certain areas. And Paul is saying this, this is, this is coming together as God designed you, but be careful and, and be aware that you're always going to be under attack, especially as Christians within a marriage and that you will be tempted to fall and and lack self-control. And Paul is saying this because he says, as one who is trustworthy in the Lord, as a concession to you or as permission given to me by the Lord. And it's it's just fantastic. In verse 7, he says, and this is his standard. This is not God's standard at all. But he said, this is his standard for, I wish that all men were even as myself. And at last Wednesday's um, Bible study, Wednesday night's Bible study, I put it to the people in the room. I said, what would happen to the human race if everyone turned out like Paul? We wouldn't have a human race because everyone would be celibate. We would lose the human race within a generation. And so Paul might wish that, that would be his desire, but it's certainly not God's design. And, but he is saying that to avoid trouble, the, the, the best way to do it, I have found, and he's saying this on his own behalf, that um, um, I have found celibacy, um, uh, the ideal position in which to serve the Lord. But there are many callings and he emphasizes this right at the end of this passage in verse 17, there are many callings. And one of the things that is incontrovertible is unarguable is that certain people have callings. I mean, um, I'm just a sucker for marriage, um, you know, and I've been, uh, I've been married for 44 years and what, Part of the joy of of that is, is all of the experiences that we have um, had together, but also the utter joy that I have in my children and grandchildren. And that wouldn't be a joy for me if I had adopted Paul's standard of living. And I'm very happy, quite frankly, with my standard of living. Um, And that is not to say that, um, um, over the 44 years, 45 years that you don't have problems. Of course you have problems. You're human beings. And, and, uh, but praise be to God that for the last 30 of those 44 years, we've been Christians and we know the way that we should use or the tools to resolve those issues. And, and that's what, you know, basically the Bible is there for us to help us. But, um, but, but, Paul is saying each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. And so uh, one commentator that I was um, um, uh, dealing with this week, he said in his 40 years of ministry, he could count, On less than the fingers on two hands, the people that he has met in ministry, who have the gift of singleness, it's unique. It is um, clearly observable that some people just have that peace and that contentment to be alone and yet be sociable within the church or within their family group or whatever. And he said, it's an amazing thing to watch. And you know it's a gift from God because the people are content and happy and they are not jealous or covetous of anything else. But it's a gift. And I can honestly say I I got the gift of matrimony. And um, I would not uh, change that or hand it back uh, for for any reason whatsoever. And in verse 8, Paul then says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Why? And he's what he's. He don't ever forget that he's talking about in a church environment, in a serving God environment. Because people who are uh, single are uh, dedicated for the things um, for God and are free all the time to be able to do the things that God asks them to do. Because um, one of my uh, favorite uh, pastoral commentators said, there's no way I could ever live um, uh, a single life. It's just not me. And he said, I know that my marriage and my children and my grandchildren diverts me at times from God. I have no doubt about that. I'm aware of that. But he said, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. And so Paul is saying, if you want to dedicate yourself to, to the Lord, then singleness is, is the, the least troublesome way. And I was just thinking today of uh, Katie, who is one of the missionaries that we, that, that we're supporting in Thailand at the moment. And she's had a very rough time uh, over the last 24 hours and, We put her prayer requests on the WhatsApp, but she has dedicated herself. I mean, she's in her mid thirties now and um, she has no intention um, unless it's a, uh, it's a divine (laughs) intervention from heaven, but she has dedicated herself to her mission work and to a service to God. And so she is able to give all of herself for that, but that's a gift from God and I admire it. And we as the church support her And so we share in the reward um, that she receives in that ministry because, as the Bible says, he who even gives a drink of water to a prophet shall share in a prophet's reward. And so um, I esteem people who live that lifestyle, but I am the first one to say that I uh, I was never gifted with that um, that choice, and Paul says it is in verse seven. He says it's a gift from God, but he goes on to in verse nine. But if the unmarried and the widows, if they cannot exercise self control, then let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And uh, we we had quite a, a an interesting. Um, um, outburst of mirth um, last Wednesday night because with passion is in italics so it's been put there and in an explanatory form um, uh, because that was the intention of, of Paul when he wrote it but the old King Jim that I had um, 30 years ago it says it's, for, it's better to marry than to burn and I'm thinking I. I thought, uh, you know, you mean if you don't marry, you burn? I mean, give me a break. And, and as, we, as we mature in our faith, we know that sometimes um, that the translators help, help us with um, a deeper understanding of the original language. Um, so thank goodness for italics and thank goodness for um, uh, wise uh, tra- translators. And now verse 10. These, verse 10 and 11, be very careful with these because there's a phrase in the first verse where Paul says, yet not I but the Lord. So verse 10 and 11 is the original standard that Jesus gave us as husbands and wives. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so this thing is um, uh, a standard that that uh Jesus uh relates to in, in Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32 and also in Mark 10 verses 9 to 12. But it's given in in the context of um, of, uh, particular circumstances that we need to be aware of. Because there are marital circumstances where there is either emotional torment or physical torment or um, deceit or dishonesty or whatever. And if it's a Practice on one part, uh, one partner's um, um, behalf, and consistent, and it's unrepentant. Um, that that the other part that it, it cannot be held to that because you're not supposed to stay in abusive in an abusive relationship. It would be best if the the offending partner was to come to reality and say, "I apologise. I repent." Uh, It will not happen again. But unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. So Jesus is saying here, if you are married, it is better not to divorce because you're trying hard to maintain the standard that God set for us. However, in verse 11, Jesus says, but if she does depart, and that word depart in the Greek is one of the words for divorce, Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to a passage, please, in Matthew 19. Because this really explains it. It explains the issue of celibacy and it explains the the issue of divorce within uh, married people. So when you have Matthew 19... The Pharisees came to Jesus in verse seven and he said, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her, that is the wife away. And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now pay very careful te- attention to that verse because Jesus is actually saying what my father and I set as a standard, Moses allowed a, dis- a, 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 a situation where it could not be maintained. And Moses was doing something that Paul has just done when he says, uh, I have allowed this by permission or by concession as one who is trustworthy by the Lord. And Moses is doing this as well. And Jesus is saying that Moses did it because of your behavior. And in verse 9, he says, I, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. Now that's a high standard, um, but it's Jesus stating that this is the the um, um, really the heart desire of God for us to honour Him with our our first commitments. But at the end of the day, it doesn't happen and it doesn't work out. And so Moses. Three thousand years ago three and a half thousand years ago made provision for couples that could not simply live together and 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 uh, what Jesus is saying is that do not let your freedom become a ground for um, immorality again and and because it leads to trouble you've, you've left one troublous uh, situation and you if you do not um, uh, obey the commandments of the Lord, you are likely to sail into troubled waters, even having been set free. And in verse 10, his disciples then said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, and they're saying to him, Lord, if you're saying that if we're freed from a wife and someone else marries her, then that's adultery, um, they're saying it would be better for us to be celibate. And look what Jesus said in verse 11. Not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. And this is where Paul is getting his, his own um, language In verse 7 because he's saying each one has his own gift from God one in this manner and another in that and Jesus is saying if you can accept this then live this by this but it is but only those to whom it has been given can be that way and he's referring here to the comment by the disciples about um, becoming virtual uh, eunuchs if you have have divorced or stayed single. I mean, eunuch is that sort of heavily loaded word that no one wants to address, but it's called singleness. And he says in verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. That is, they were physically handicapped from birth. And so they're automatically, um, and they can be physically uh, um, uh, handicapped or they can be intellectually handicapped or physically or emotionally handicapped in such a way that they cannot um, engage with a member of the opposite sex. And he says, there are some who were born this way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, that is kings, if you're going to serve in the um, kings or emperor's uh, harem, then they make you a eunuch so that there's no possibility of you getting yourself into huge trouble. And finally, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Accept it. And so it's one of the most complex and, and troublesome areas of, of uh, human endeavor to live with people for your entire life, melding two personalities uh, into one, and also um, realizing that without the basis of love, it becomes so extremely difficult. Uh, and and so there is the option of singleness. Uh, you can divorce if, if there is um, no chance of reconciliation. But both Jesus and Paul are saying here, that you need to be aware that your freedom from one marriage does not then allow you to um, conduct yourself in a way that is going to lead to more trouble. And in verse 12, Paul says, now this is Paul's opinion, not Jesus's standard. In verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, then let him not divorce her. There there were uh, instances instances in the Corinthian church uh, and I have seen um, in personal experience uh, of this over the last 30 years where problems are caused by two unsaved people marry, and then one of them becomes a believer and therefore there are uh, uh, strong um, conflicts within the marriage, um, because of that 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 now division. One is a believer; one has faith in Jesus Christ, and the other person in the marriage doesn't. And Paul is saying to to address this in the Corinthian church, but for all time. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she's still willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And in verse thirteen, he says. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, then let her not divorce him. And there are very good reasons why Paul is saying this and he finishes it off in the, in the last um, uh, couple of verses. And in verse 14, it's a very um, intense verse, this one. And a lot of uh, commentators struggle to, to come to a unified position on it. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified. Please understand in that verse, it doesn't mean saved. It means sanctified. It means because the, the unbelieving husband is living with a believing wife, because God will um, bless her by insights and um, a change personality, change behavior, if she's honoring the Lord and glory, glory, giving glory to the Lord, that the husband, because he's in that situation, will be set apart and he's available to experience the blessings that his wife is blessing because of her faith. And, and Paul brings this to a head towards the end of, the, uh, of this passage. So the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife likewise is sanctified by the believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And once again, if you read the commentators on this, they struggle to get to the depths of it, but the consensus seems to be that the children of believers then become aware in their own home of the evidence of faith by at least one period of parent in the existence of an eternal loving God. And so they would be exposed to that and therefore that they would be um, able to be um, um, one to the gospel by the believing parent, parent or at least Put in a position where someone else can preach the gospel to them later on in life and they will accept it but please don't ever believe um, um, what unskilled people have said that if one believing parent is in the family then the whole family is saved. that's not what it means it just means that the other the unbelieving people in the in the um, family unit Uh, um, are exposed to the blessings that the believer has from God and also that they're exposed to the truth of the gospel from Jesus Christ and that is their benefit and in verse 15 Paul is building it up and, and says but if the unbeliever departs and that word once again in the Greek is this is about divorce then let him depart let him go A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And by that, um, all of the commentators agree that if um, uh, an unbelieving spouse divorces you, there is an exhortation for the believing spouse who is divorced, can remarry. either stay single or can remarry but the exhortation from Paul is please marry a believer and don't get yourself into this situation again and unfortunately I have seen over the years faithful believing people who have gone into a marriage knowing full well that their spouse to be is unsaved, and they have this firm belief that their faith will win that spouse to the faith. Uh, And I can honestly say, sadly, that at least in 80% of the cases, the opposite happened, that the believing spouse fell away from the faith. even. You have to remember you are born again permanently, and and uh, uh, and you have a destiny, destiny in Christ uh, waiting for you. But your witness and your faith evaporates under the relentless emotional press- pressure of an un- unsaved spouse, and and Paul addresses that in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter six. But it, it, what Paul is saying here, if an unbelieving spouse leaves, then let them leave in peace. And if the believing spouse wishes to remarry, then please remarry a believer so that this situation doesn't um, uh, happen. But here, verse 16 is the kicker. And this is the, the verse that bites. For how do you know, O wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And that's the situation where you are able to live in accord with one another, one believer and one unbeliever. But the underlying affection and, and um, acceptability to each other means that you can continue on in your marriage. And who knows? God knows, by the way. But who knows amongst us whether or not your faith will finally win someone over to the Lord? And, uh, you know, that's, that's the question that we can't answer. So any decision that you take to do to divorce or to depart is such that you have to do it with the knowledge that there was a possibility that your faith could have won someone to 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 the faith, but it has to be seen in the in the environment of an amicable relationship there still existing after one comes to faith, and in verse seventeen, um, Paul finishes off. And it's just brilliant. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So if God has called you to be single and celibate, if God has called you to be um, um, uh, in matrimony, uh, married, And if God has called you to be in a relationship where your spouse is unbelieving, but you still have this love and affection for one another, so be it. And if that cannot be maintained, then there is this um, uh, permission to separate, uh, but the believing spouse is either to remain unmarried or if they seek and desire marriage then um, then they should marry a, a believer and um, it's it's the the scriptural solution to probably one of the most um, um, problematic situations that we have as as uh, believers have have faced and um, i uh, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of pastors either mumble their way through this and get through it as quickly as they can so that they can get to spiritual gifts uh, in 12, 12, 13, and 14 or to the, to the rapture in 15. But really, um, it, it, it's an act of um, um, improper conduct if you avoid this. Because as a pastor, uh, and, and you know, one of the guy that I was mentioning before that's been pastoring for 40 years, he said all of his time is taken up in either premarital counselling and and educating young people into what to be aware of when you join together, or fixing up problems after the event. And uh, as a pastor, you know, because the church is generally full of families, that is, that is um, the pastor's lot. And, uh, and Sue and I have, have spent a lot of time doing that. And um, uh, it, it, is, it, it comes with the territory and you need to be able to show um, people in troublous relationships what the Bible says about their relationship what the Bible says not what other people around you whisper to you saying I think you should do this or I think you should do that. You have a clear understanding of what the scripture says and then if you have peace in your heart and you've settled this and you've made your peace with God then then, um, um, go and have it sort of verified by someone that you can trust uh, and um, God and and but peace. But God always does. So the highest desire for us is for us to live in peace, either with each other or without each other, um, and and to devote our lives and ourselves and uh, our situation to God. And I should imagine that there'll be some questions um, asked about situations like this. So. If people want to um, put their hands up and ask a question, I'm more than happy to to do it for about a quarter of an hour.